You're listening to the Fight Trainers Podcast, Season 5, Episode 1, published on March 7th, 2023. In this episode, we'll be talking to Ashley Lubinsky from The Gun Code. I'm your host, Rob Beckman, and sit back and relax. Listen to Episode 1 of Season 5. Thank you for listening. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at the FTA, the Firearms Trainers Association. Visit their website at ftaprotect.com to learn more about their instructor coverage they offer and their competitive pricing. Being a certified instructor means you can apply for FTA coverage. And remember, listeners to the podcast get 10% off by entering promo code FTP10 at checkout. This episode is also brought to you by KSG Holsters. They're professional-grade Kydex handcrafted here in the United States of America. They're available for a large variety of firearms. They're purpose-built one-by-one for comfort and concealability. All KSG Holsters are Enigma-compatible. There are a lot of customization options, so you can order the holster that fits your needs exactly. Remember, KSG Holsters. We bring you this podcast support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Today, we're joined by Ashley Lubinsky from The Gun Code. Welcome, Ashley, to the podcast, and thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. No problem at all. Uh, you're definitely one of the interesting guests that we love to bring on the podcast before we jump into the to the questions i have can you give our listeners a little bit about your background and what you do in the 2a community yeah um i always say this is a much i, I have to find a better way to describe this succinctly so i apologize if it bounces all over the place but um for those of you who are familiar with me i'm a firearms historian um i am most well known though for running and rebuilding the cody firearms museum which is one of the largest firearms museums in the united states uh it's out of cody wyoming and um i started my career at the smithsonian institutions national firearms collection and actually Went back and forth uh, between the Smithsonian and Cody, which are affiliated for a while, and learned everything I could about firearms and material culture and curating um, firearms exhibitions and talking to the public about guns. Um, and so I was with Cody for about a decade, and now I consult full-time. So I am rebuilding several other museums. I just uh, co-founded the University of Wyoming College of Law's Firearms Research Center. Uh, I serve as an expert witness a lot um, in terms of anything firearms history-related, anything from historic firearms and product liability up through Second Amendment cases. I do TV from time to time uh, with firearms, and uh, I write for a bunch of different magazines. I think that's all of it. And your free time, you've got you've got a few dogs, right? Yeah, two dogs, <laughs> a cat. <laughs> yeah, you're you're busy, that's for sure. Well, hey, our topic today is talking about gun culture, and I heard you talk about this on the Walk and Talk America podcast, and I thought it was kind of fascinating because it's not just okay, we've got muzzleloaders and we and we've got you know uh, centerfire rifles and then we've got the modern you know ki kind of uh, uh ar rifles you go into it probably a hundred times deeper than uh than what i could do and that's where i thought it'd be really good for you to kind of walk us through some of the timetables like what was the firearm culture in this country when it comes to pre-civil war yeah, so this is actually a really interesting question, especially now because of the Bruin decision mm -hmm. um, in 2022. And part of that is, and this has been like my life for like the past six months, um, 
One of the things that was important about the Bruin decision was the importance of history to determining constitutionality of uh, firearms laws that in, are in existence today. So according to Bruin, um, the most relevant time frame to discuss uh, what technology was available, what was the culture, and are there any comparable laws from that time frame is the founding era, which is around the ratification of the Second Amendment. Um, but then there's a lot of conversation in, in some of the lawsuits I'm working on right now about um, around the ratification of the 14th Amendment. And so that's kind of the second most important time frame to Bruin. And then there's all of these kind of in between periods of time within American history and international history to some extent um, that kind of inform the different time frames that Bruin wants us to talk about. So uh, do you want me to start earlier? We could do 19th century. There's so much. <laughs> 19th century. Let's, uh, let's start there. Okay. So uh, the 19th century is kind of an interesting time for firearms development. Um, back in the 1700s, you know, you had 2,500 to 3,000 gunsmiths in the United States, but you have to understand that firearms were still individually made to some extent. I mean, there were armories that existed in the United States by the turn of the um, 1800s, but for the bulk of firearms that were being produced, they were being produced by individuals um, or from foreign armories. And so it's a very different thing to think about when we're talking about, you know, firearms design and firearms use. So back in the, in the, you know, period right before the 19th century, one of the you know most common firearms you would have would be the American long rifle. Um, and that almost served as like a, a multi-purpose tool. Um, so you had it uh, for hunting, you had it for target shooting, you had it for self-defense and sometimes for war, although that's a little bit exaggerated. Um, it was used, but not as much as people think it was. So you think about, you know, maybe you have one firearm, maybe you have, uh, you know, several firearms, but they have kind of a multi-purpose use. But as you come into the 19th century, you know, you you start to get the the different industrial revolutions in the United States. You start to develop actual manufacturing processes. And so while you're shifting out of having guns designed by individuals or small runs of firearms technology, you're now also moving into much more of a modern era um, in terms of firearms production that ultimately, you know, obviously uh, explodes during the American Civil War. Uh, would you like me to talk a little bit about the technologies that were available or? Yes, the, because the I think that's one, that's, that's one of those things where the technology right around, you know, the 1860s there, I mean, we went from the muzzle loaders into the center center fire and you know that was that that changed changed things quite a bit yeah uh so what i think is kind of interesting so firearms have been around for like 700 years and i think that it's fascinating for a lot of people to understand that early technology so technology even in the 1600s even all the way back to the 1400s, you know, you had single shots, but you also had repeaters. Rifling was developed around 1450. Um, so a lot of these things that we start to see as more modern technology actually has roots centuries before the 19th century. But when you get into the 1800s, the mid 1800s, like I said, with the industrial revolution and manufacturing processes changes, you get a lot more technology that's uniform, um, a lot more diversity within that technology. But then at the same time, you see society changing in a way that utilizes that technology. So, you know, before, if you had a repeating firearm in the 1600s in Europe, you were probably commissioning it. You were probably using it for target shooting or hunting. You were probably not using it on the battlefield. Um, but the you see in American culture a shift in the way that we fight wars by the time you get to the Civil War. And so, 
you had said, you know, we have these muzzle loaders. Um, center fire does come about in the um, first couple of decades of the 1800s. Uh, but what's interesting when you get to the beginning of the Civil War is, yeah, you've got revolvers, you've got, um, you know, right around the beginning of the war, you know, several lever action styles, you've got breech loading firearms that are in existence. But when you start at the beginning of the war, you see um, that you're still kind of using that archaic technology at the beginning of it. So you're still using a muzzle loader. It's just, you know, as an infantry arm, but now it's rifled. And so that's when you start to see these shifts um, appear during this time frame. So one of the biggest developments um, to shift the way that firearms are utilized on the battlefield, especially, is the development of a conically shaped projectile. So before uh, the development of a conically shaped projectile, you had a round musket ball. So yes, you had rifling, but you couldn't really adapt it to the battlefield in kind of a large scale because it was slow to load. It was expensive. So when you develop the, you know, conically shaped cartridge, which happens um, in, like I said, the first couple of decades of the of the 1800s and then is ultimately you know, modified by someone at Harper's Ferry named James Burton. But that now allows rifling to be um, utilized on the battlefield for the first time, kind of in a larger capacity. And so when you're getting up into the Civil War, you still are seeing muzzle loaders, you're still seeing single shots, but all of a sudden now there's rifling involved. And there are some units that start adopting uh, breech loading firearms like the, the Sharps rifle. And you have some people that are buying Henry rifles, although they weren't, you know, massively adopted. Um, and so you see this really interesting shift shift in the way that we're fighting the war um, at the beginning of it and then by the end of it. So with the rifling, you know, you start the war shoulder to shoulder fighting to some extent like you had been for centuries. And the rifling kind of doesn't matter at that point because you're still firing kind of at as terrible as it sounds a human wall. But by the end of the war, with all of these advancements in technology, you know, there are the the Union Army, are, they're digging trenches um, and they're starting to kind of line up artillery um, around city, cities to kind of um, be able to take over these 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 cities in the south. Um, um, and so you you see that the importance of shifting technology and mass manufacturer really impacts kind of in such a short period of time, right? 1861 to 1865, you go from shoulder to shoulder fighting with single shot muzzle loaders, and then all of a sudden you're digging trenches by 1865. And so you see how these technologies have been around for a long time, but man, it changes really fast um, once you get the abilities to produce the way they were. And then also, obviously, um, although it's not a, you know, a nice thing to think about, but warfare tends to fuel a lot of that um, shifting in the way that we use firearms and also the way that we you know perceive them. Um, and after the war, it just kind of takes off from there. Mm hmm. Yeah, talking about after the war, how does the, how does the after war, as the soldiers are coming back to their homes, the uh, soldiers having used you know rifles with rifling in them, sharps rifles, you know, cent centerfire cartridges on them, things. How how does that um, impact uh, American life culture around then? Well, American life. Um I won't get too far into the kind of psychology of what goes on after the Civil War, but um, it's kind of hard to, I'm, I'm trying to come up with a good way to describe it for you because there's so many different pockets of things that are going on um, in terms of culture and firearms use. I mean, you've got um, obviously a, a post-war weapons surplus. So all of these firearms that are made um, during the war, you know, they've got to go somewhere after the war. And so um, Springfield Armory sells um, some of their, you know, their firearms, both to the individual soldier, but then also through dealers and distributors. 
Um, now you've got this increased manufacturing capability. Um, so you start to see firearms being made, you know, in much larger numbers after the war. And also that with the development of some of the technologies, uh, you start to see and improvements in ammunition technology, you see, to, you start to see firearms being used for specialized purposes, you know, rather than that kind of multi-purpose tool, which I just, you know, I talked about earlier. So, you know, you may have a Springfield trap door that you're using for, you know, bison hunting, but then you also may be carrying your, you know, Winchester lever action after 1866 um, with, you know, in 4440 with your cold single action, you know, by the 1870s in 4440 as well. So you're starting to see that people aren't just buying one gun necessarily. Now they've got a gun for this, a gun for that, you know, and, and that's used for a range of different purposes. Um, when you look at kind of the country right after the war, um, in terms of the North and the South, there's still a lot of unrest going on. Um, just because we ended the war, it didn't mean things, you know, worked mm -hmm. out perfectly. And the, um, everybody and so didn't agree on the end. That's for sure. Yeah. So you see, um, a lot of really volatile, uh, well, literally volatile, um, experiences for people, but then also, uh, kind of an explosive dialogue on firearms and firearms carry, um, who can carry, uh, firearms, especially in the South. So prior to, uh, you know, as early as the colonies, I mean, there were regulations against, uh, Native Americans and, and black, uh, even free black Americans and, and, and slave peoples and, uh, people of mixed race, uh, limited, there were literal limits on their ability to own firearms. And that starts, well, overseas, but then in the colonies that exist. And so that actually continues for a really long time. Um, the Civil War ends. And I mean, you still have those laws uh, in the South leading up to the Civil War where, you know, Black people can't own firearms, free Blacks can't own firearms. Sometimes they'll say that they can, and then they change their mind two years later. So they come and seize, you know, guns out of Black homes. Um, but when the war ends, you start to see um, some involvement kind of on a larger scale. And so um, right as the war ends, there's the Civil Rights Act of 1866. There's also um, the Second Freedmen's Bureau, and then ultimately what becomes the 14th Amendment. Um, you know, these things basically say you can no longer regulate based on race. Um, so now you see this kind of shift in dialogue in the South. And so there's this big conversation about carry. Um, it's no longer, you know, saying race specifically, but now it's saying things like you can open carry this, but you can't concealed carry a smaller version of the same gun. Um, and so there's a lot going on kind of within Northern Southern tensions, um, especially in the South, there are a lot of, you know, very kind of violent experiences. And so there's a, a movement of different groups of people in the South wanting to carry. Uh, at the same time, you know, people are moving out West. It's so complicated. I'm sorry. It's mm -hmm. just <laughs> so many different things. Um, you know, you've got people moving out West and that has its own set of needs. Now people have been going out West, you know, since the 1700s and obviously Native Americans had been there, you know, long before that. Uh, but there's a new set of needs. And while people were kind of going out West before the Civil War, um, you know, through stagecoaches and more individualized um, journeys, you know, by the time you get the transcontinental railroad in place, you know, people are now moving out West in mass. And so, you know, they have their firearms, they have, you know, either their post-war gun or if they can afford it, you know, there are a bunch of different guns, you know, you've got single shots, you've got repeaters and they're moving out West and then they're encountering different clashes. And so there's, I don't know, it's just, 
there's so much going on within the culture. And then you've got larger production of firearms. You've got firearms that are now being developed for specific purposes um, because you've got the technology and the ability to do it. And so there's just a lot of, there, there are a lot more options uh, when you get to that time frame. And, and you're coming into a more modern era um, in terms of consumerism. And so it's just a really fascinating time, you know, right as the war is ending and as you kind of start to head towards the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where it's, um, you know, back then, you know, they, they had the, you know, Jim Crow laws, they had, you know, a lot of different things to, you know, discriminate against, you know, who you can, who you can't. And, you know, a lot of times we, we get that, we get this, uh, very focused that, you know, the only, the only issues they, that we've had in gun culture is in the you know 21st century type of thing. You know, we have a very short memory thinking about, but it's actually been, you know, there's been contention about it, you know, for, literally for 200 years as far as who can, where can they, and how can they uh, carry them. So that's, yeah. that's very interesting. So bring us into the 20, 20th century. You know, how, do, how does, how do things uh, change with, um, you know, World War One and then get, getting into the National Firearms Act and everything? Yeah. So, you know, uh, you know, I mentioned kind of as we march towards the 20th century, you know, things are changing. Um, and I think it's important to kind of point out right at the turn of the century, you're, I mentioned consumerism, you kind of get this modern era concept of consumerism, you know, advertising to different people for different products and firearms is no different. And what's interesting about that too, though, is that firearms manufacturers are marketing to men and women, um, which I think is kind of an interesting thing culturally there. But as you kind of turn into the 20th century, you're getting more of a modern sense uh, of, you know, what we think of as, you know, American culture. Um, you know, people have mass migration into cities, um, right at the turn of the 20th century. Um, so you've got people all over the place. You've got many different things going on, but one of the things that starts to kind of shift in terms of cultural understanding is this increase of people in the city. And I don't mean to ignore the West, but we're going to talk about back East because that's mm-hmm. a lot of, um, a lot of what's going on. Um, so people moving into cities, not just East, but, you know, Midwest and all over. Um, and as a result, there is um, an increase in crime rates um, in, in the 20th century, and there's no way to track um, crimes that are committed over state lines. Um so you start to see this shift in perception of culture, and there's a lot of unrest um, in American culture in the turn of the 20th century. You've got the assassination of uh, President McKinley, which was 1901 or two, um, and the way that the you know newspaper reporters that reported that was that you know this was a, an act of anarchy, um, and so there's just a lot of kind of concern about as we populate our cities, you know, how can we keep you know crime reduced? That sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then you start to get federal regulatory bureaus that pop up. Um, and, the, and the first one is what ultimately becomes the the FBI. Um, and that's, you know, latter half of the first decade in the 20th century. It was a lot of, <laughs> that was a lot of way to say, I can't remember if it was like 1908 or something. Um, but you start to see that ability to kind of regulate across state lines. And if I remember correctly, um, the initial reason they were trying to track across state lines was for, um, to regulate, um, sex trafficking. Um, and so you start to get kind of this, this new way to enforce, new way to kind of try to bring peace um, to a very much changing, modernizing world. Um, 
And at the same time, you've got, you know, people everywhere. You've got, you know, all different types of technologies available, things that are, you know, right around the turn of the 20th century. You know, you start to get, you know, semi-automatic technology, you get automatic technology. You know, there's just so many options for people um, in terms of firearms ownership. But then you also um, have a little bit of stunted growth in terms of firearms development by the time you're kind of leading up to World War One. Um, it's kind of interesting for people to know that like when we, when World War One started, um, yeah, there were, you know, semi-automatic handguns and, you know, uh, you know, automatic technology and all of that had existed since the 1880s, 1890s. But when we started the war, or when the allies started the war, you know, we were shipping over Remington rolling blocks, <laughs> um, you know, so your, your, your single shot Remington rolling block from the 19th century. I mean, that's what we had, you know, to provide for people. I mean, you know, it just hadn't, you know, I guess hadn't crossed anybody's mind. To, well, you know, and, and probably just that. like we've, like we've got today, you know, there's budget, you know, considerations. And do you want to go along and spend your money buying a whole bunch of guns that you don't need right now, or go keep the old stuff around? And that's probably the decisions. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, look at this. We've got a world war going on. And now we've got to ramp up, you know, and figure out how we can build something more efficient. Exactly. And so, you know, it's interesting because you see these, I, you know, I mentioned it with the Civil War, you know, you see these kind of booms in production and innovation. And a lot of times, you know, when the war ends, that kind of goes away too. Um, and so leading into World War One, obviously, like I said, we're, you know, we're supplying guns, but we're also, you know, kind of behind the eight ball on everything. Um, but when you look at by the end of World War One, I, I mean, you're really starting to see, um, modern technology being implemented, or at least trying to be by by the end of the war. Um, and, and what's interesting, too, is a lot of manufacturers that we associate as like in, you know, American companies like Winchester, for example. So Winchester is fascinating because, you know, we all think about like the old West, right? And lever actions. But Winchester actually was far more successful um, with their ammunition production um, than, than anything else early on. And then they actually become a major global military manufacturer during World War one um you know they start making enfields they make um all kinds of firearms for the allies um they actually end up pretty much bankrupting themselves um trying to you know supply these guns it didn't go so well they opened up other factories you know they ended up ultimately winchester does go bankrupt in 1931 um but you know they start they all this production revs up you know but it ultimately ends up kind of destroying certain companies who can't keep their production you know they spend all this money to have increased production right and then the war ends and they don't have the audience for that necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, but by the time you get to the end of World War One, you know, you do also get your, you know, your Thompson submachine guns, which are you know, real late in the war. But um but then at the same, or right at the end of it. Uh, and one thing that people don't realize too is there's other innovation going on uh, behind the scenes that doesn't get, you know, adopted or manufactured. Winchester is one of the more fascinating companies to talk about because there's so much about that company that people don't realize. But they make, um, right around 1917, they make a selective fire. Uh, so it's a twin top mounted magazine, selective fire, intermediate cartridge firearm, um, which is single soldier portable. And so um, not to make people angry, but if I'm following the Defense Intelligence Agency's 1970 manual on what is an assault rifle, that is the definition of an assault rifle. Um, we all credit it with the Sturmgewehr, um, but that and that is one of the ones that's, you know, produced earliest. Um, but that technology was identified in there 
during World War One, and even some to some extent earlier. Um, so really, by the time you get to the end of World War One, we're talking about things that people think are modern technology are in existence, whether they're being produced in mass or not yet. Um, but yeah, so when the war ends, you now have all these firearms, you've got an increased, um, you know, capacity for those firearms. Um, and the technology and, you know, as the kind of country kind of comes back to, to normal again, kind of like after the Civil War, right? You know, as they're trying to figure things out, there is um, you know, continued issues within the country. Um, and then that ultimately leads up to the first truly federal or national firearms regulation, which is the, the you know, NFA, the National Firearms Act of 1934. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which, uh, you know, you know, was brought around, you know, the NFA Act, you know, from a lot of the gangsters and, you know, in trying to regulate, you know, who can have, you know, all these different types of uh, firearms from machine guns to short barrel rifles to uh, short barrel shotguns and such, because, I mean, it sounds very odd for us uh, in the 21st century to say this, but at the same time, you could literally go down to your hardware store and, you know, order yourself a Browning automatic rifle or or Thompson, you know, machine gun with no problem at all. And they would just sell it to you. And, you know, that was that no background check, nothing, you know, by today's standard, it sounds so foreign. I mean, a, a Maxim silencer, and I'm using silencer because that's what he called it. Um, but a Maxim silencer, you know, in the early 1900s was $8, you know, $5 to some extent. I mean, um, you know, it, it is really interesting to see this kind of shift in, in the way that we regulate firearms. Um, you know, I mentioned that there's a lot of laws regulating people, the certain people who can own firearms, the certain, you know, ways that you can carry um, licensing, all of that kind of, you know, is at play and and a conversation prior to the National Firearms Act. But really, once you see the the Civil Rights Act of 1866 come into play, and the fact that you can't say, you know, a black person can't own a firearm anymore, you do start to see these, um, what they're called Army Navy laws, um, where now it's, you know, you can have a handgun or revolver, but you could only have a Colt or a Smith & Wesson, you know, a specific type that also happens to be expensive, which um, ultimately prices out, you know, a whole classes of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so you start to see kind of this feature-based um, firearms conversation and, and regulation happen after the Civil War. Um, so you see it to some extent. And so when you get the end NFA, you know, that's really like it's a 20th century conversation about the regulation of specific types of firearms um, and, and whether or not that would have a, an impact on, you know, crime own, owners, usage, that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, there was obviously the usage of the Thompson um, by criminals, but I think it's also important to put into perspective, you know, that the, how many, you know, millions of Thompsons were made during the, you know, run of the gun, especially by World War II, you know, and, and that the National Postal Service, their like enforcement <laughs> group carried Thompsons, you know, so it's, it's you know, there there is crime being, happening with these things, but then we also have to think about the kind of larger uh, usage of them. But the National Firearms Act goes into place, um, and I think a lot of people don't understand, maybe obviously your audience probably understands this better than others, But, um, you know, what people don't realize is it didn't ban machine guns. It didn't ban suppressors. It didn't ban short barrel guns. It placed a regulation on them, you know, so it placed, um, for the, the, the silencers and the, um, automatic firearms. I mean, that was a $200 tax stamp, which I think is fascinating because that's $200 in 1934 and it's still $200 today. Today, mm-hmm. um, I shouldn't tell anybody that. <laughs> I didn't tell anybody that. 
Um, so there's, you know, these regulations on these technologies, but you can still, um, you, you, you can still have your machine gun. You just have to register it. Uh, but what's also interesting about that is that once that registration closes, there's only, I, I want to say there's only one other time that registration opens, but I feel like someone just told me there was another, there was a third time or something, but you know, you regulate it and then, you know, you can still make machine guns for the civilian population, but it has to be registered moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's, uh, that's very interesting about the first part of the National Firearms Act. So how do things uh, progress as we get into World War II, Korea, and Vietnam when it comes to, you know, gun culture? Um, yeah, moving into World War II. So, I, you know, I mentioned that it's almost like you get this, um, this you know, boom of technology and advancement when you see the war. You know, everyone's trying mm-hmm. to create the the latest, greatest thing. But then when the war ends, it kind of like stops you know so you get this crazy advanced you know selective fire rifle at the end of world war ii that winchester made and now it's not being produced because the war ends so they don't see the validity the the need for it you know and that kind of moves into you know world war ii same with technology you know with the development of the m1 garand but then also the m1 carbine i mean there was like you know not a lot of movement for the m1 carbine you know until we needed it you know and mm-hmm. then there was a lot of movement they were using a lot of 1903 springfields you know the beginning of world yep. war ii and then it's like no we need a, we need m1s yeah so, you know, so it's it happens again, but with just different technology, different war. I hate to blanket it like it's all the same, but for the sake of brevity, I will <laughs> I will do that. Um, you know, so you get this production, um, you know, a- a- during World War II. Um, you know, by the end of the war now, we've got, uh, you know, the, the p- potential for these selective fire, you know, guns, um, you know, and after the Sturmgewehrs developed, you know, everyone wants to kind of create their version of that moving out of World War II. Um, World War II, I mean, like all war, I mean, it takes a huge toll on the people who fight it, but then the people who also are like living that experience. Um, I didn't get into the psychology of the post-Civil War period, but it is fascinating, um, you know, the way that we kind of construct nation building um, out of cultural trauma trauma. Um, and so World War II, you now, after World War II, you now have, you know, new technology, you know, new solutions that we're trying, you know, new culture. Um, and now the the face, I always say the face of firearms changes, right? With the development of the AR-10 into the AR-15. Um, so now, you know, you're not necessarily, you know, you still have automatic firearms, semi-automatics like you've had since the 1880s, but now, you know, we're exploring with synthetic materials. Um, aeronautics companies are getting involved. So, you know, Fairchild is who, you know, ultimately makes the first AR-10s, AR-15s. And, um, uh, sorry, their subsidiary is called Armalite. I just mm-hmm. <laughs> tried yeah. to point that out. Um, you know, their subsidiary is Armalite. And so you start to see an experimentation, not just in the type of technology, but you also start seeing the experimentation in the materials of, you know, is there something lighter? Is there something more durable? What can we use? Um, this time frame, though, is um, something I actually studied in graduate school. Um, so I'm happy to talk a little bit more about this. But there is a real shift in the culture of firearms at this point. Um, you know, I could go on all day about each one of these time frames for probably hours. But um, it's interesting because after the after World War II, the you know technology is being developed. The way that the the way that it looks is different. But then there's a lot of unrest going on in the country, especially you know with the assassin ultimately leading up to the assassination of President Kennedy. Um, 
Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and, and there's movement into the into the 70s, um, 60s and 70s for radical activism. And so if you look at um, academic scholarship from the time frame, so, you know, historians from the time frame, you actually see there's a lot more research being done at university level about firearms culture, about quote unquote gun culture and trying to define what that means, um, which, you know, yeah, you see to some extent before that, but like now people are really studying it and trying to make sense of it. And I know um, I want to say his name, Hofstad. I always want to say Hofstadter, but that's um, Hogan's Heroes, which mm-hmm. not the same yeah. person. Um, um, he's a scholar from that time frame, and he defines gun culture by separating it between, um, you know, sporting, hunting, um, you know, target shooting, and then this kind of more, they wouldn't have used the word tactical back then, but this more kind of radical self-defense culture. So you end up seeing kind of this shift where people are now, you know, really studying it, having dialogue about it. The technology is changing in a way that, you know, I guess people, I mean, it's still the same tech. Like to, to me, it's, you know, I know it's way more complicated than that, but the technology is, you know, pretty old when you think about it, but because it's now looking different and we've got, you know, kind of a growing um, uncertainty in our country, which does lead into, I know I skipped over Korea. I'm sorry. Mm. <laughs> uh, but, you know, as you get, you know, you now are moving into a time frame where, um, you know, People are also now not as, you know, not necessarily always supporting the war efforts that we we're in, um, especially coming into Vietnam. So it just everything is just shifting and, and, and firearms become a really central part of the way that people are kind of associating almost identity. Um, you know, I, I think it's kind of interesting because when you talk about today, I feel like so often you know, firearm, some firearms owners see it as an identity, you know, a part of their identity. Um, and you do start seeing that with different groups. And I think it's interesting because you don't always get, um, it's not the groups that you think, right? Um, so in the 60s and 70s, you start seeing armed radical activism. So leftist activism, armed feminism, armed civil rights activism. And that's kind of a really fascinating um, thing to look at because a lot of the dialogue that's going on there um, in terms of, so armed feminism, for example, uh, the second wave of feminism, you know, is tied, you know, very much into the sexual revolution. And there are, there is a branch of second wave feminism that does not want to arm themselves, but there is a group that does want to arm themselves. And the number one thing that they're talking about is carrying a firearm for self-defense to protect themselves from rape. And when you see the pamphlets that they put out in the material that they're writing, it is really very comprehensive material. Uh, you know, they not only, you know, talk about the, you know, their, their creed, why they're doing it, but they also talk about, you know, firearm safety is huge, um, different positioning. I mean, these pamphlets literally have diagrams to show you how to hold a gun, how to stand with a gun. The one Women's Press Collective from 1975, I think. Um, it's a it's a lesbian um, publication out of California, and they've got lists of different guns that you can own, like Rugers and that kind of thing, and what they are, how much they cost, um, you know, why you might want to need them, why you might want to use them, and then they, you know teach you about different laws so you can understand laws so you don't get in trouble if you're going to carry a firearm to protect yourself. And so you see a lot of this kind of this really intense dialogue going on with a group of people that you probably didn't associate with firearms before I started talking about this. And what's interesting is that, you know, within two decades, you know, in 1994, the National Rifle Association starts their Refuse to Be a Victim program. And it's interesting because 
so much of what, you know, current conversations about women arming themselves um, within the firearms community is so similar sounding to the research and the things that women armed feminists were promoting in the 1970s. Now, there are obviously differences to it, but it's fascinating because this period just changes everything in the way we talk about firearms. But then you get these groups of people that you do not associate necessarily with guns in a modern sense. And they're some of the people almost leading the charge in safe firearms ownership, how to carry, why to carry, um, that kind of thing. And that does move over into the, the leftist, um, the leftist um, activism as well. I mean, you could literally take a gun course at Berkeley. Um, wow. You know, they had <laughs> pamphlets as well. My favorite, if it's like handguns and self-defense for radicals, revolutionaries and easy riders, 1969 uh, out of Berkeley, University of Berkeley Press. And um, so, but all of this, you know, you'd say, oh, I have nothing in common with these people, right? And you look at the way that they're describing things and you're like, wow, this sounds really familiar <laughs> to a lot of the stuff that we're doing. And they're also referencing NRA publications and the, you know, I, I don't remember if it gun digest dates that back that far, but I remember it's several of the recognizable brands. And so while you're starting to get the kind of uncomfortable modern gun culture dialogue. And part of that is because of these radical activists that were arming themselves. You also can look at these people and go, okay, maybe I don't agree with everything that was going on, but man, the information you're putting out was really solid. And now we look at this and we see that it's the foundation for a lot of the things that we talk about with firearms and safety today. Um, Tom Givens, who I'm sure you talked yep. about before the podcast. Um, he, he had his pamphlet in 1980. There was a pamphlet he did for women and shooting. And those women, the armed feminists, they also referenced um, him as well. And so there's a lot more movement uh, within, you know, gun ownership than you would assume that you would have seen, especially from that time period, and especially today. Well, that's that's uh, very, very, very interesting because, you know, when you look at the um, you know, sixties and seventies, you know, the, the cultural revolution there, you know, we think about, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We don't re necessarily think about, you know, arming, you know, armed, um, you know, uh, feminism and different things like that. So that's, uh, that's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot that goes on, um, in that time frame, I gave, I was saying before this recording, but that I um, gave a lecture for the Royal Armories on this time frame. I mean, and there's a lot going on, not just with the different radicalized groups, but, you know, concerted efforts to either incite violence amongst those people or, um, you know, kind of control where that violence is happening. Um, and there were leaked documents from, I can't remember what group leaked them from the, you know, the FBI of things that they were trying to do to uh, incite violence um, within urban communities during that time frame. So I think that there's so much, like I would love to study it more, but there's so much to unpack right in that, you know, 60s, 70s, Mm -hmm. 80s beginning of the 80s time frame because it's one of those things where if you looked at it you'd go you almost feel like you know um how can I phrase this? You look at it and you almost feel like it's, you know, can't possibly relate to you, right? Especially today, you know, as a gun owner, you know, it can't possibly relate to you, right? But it's so similar to how we got to where we are today and some of the conversations that we're having today. I really think that there's a lot of value in looking to that because at the same time too, you're getting that change in the way the firearms looks um, with a change in the way our culture looks. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, it really is. I think it needs 
far more study um, because I think it really informs where we came today. Um, I gave a I gave a rally speech years ago at the DC Project, um, which the DC Project is a nonprofit that um, mm-hmm. has women from all fifty states, um, nonpartisan. Yep, yep. we've um, had them on before too. Yeah, and <laughs> uh, they asked me to speak at their rally, and I always joke anytime. I'm, someone asked a historian to speak at a rally. I'm like, well, you want me to put them to sleep? (laughs) You know? Um, But they asked me to speak about women and um, the history of women and firearms. And that's its own topic for another day. But the way that I ended it, so I talked about my feminists um, and hoped that there weren't just like crickets in the, (laughs) in the group, but that's why the DC project is great. Right. Because you've got, you know, everyone across the political spectrum um, within that group, female gun owners, regardless of politics. Um, And so I said at the end, I'm like, what's interesting is that, If you look at feminism today, um, third wave feminism, a lot of times those feminists scoff at women wanting to own firearms for protection. And a lot of times female firearms owners don't feel like they can relate to feminists, but we really have each other to thank for how we got to where we are today. Um, And I think it's always really fascinating when you can find those little like, you know, nuggets of um, where we can relate to one another, right? Where you you, you see unity in that. Yeah, the co- the common ground between the two sides. Yeah. Mm-hmm, exactly. But then well, also, as I walked away, I have to share because it was really funny to me. As I walked away, there were flag bearers, and one of them had a cardboard sign that made some joke like, um, uh, "The Second Amendment doing more for female gun ownership than the entire feminist movement." And I just laughed because I'm like, "That's ironic." <laughs> Please don't <laughs> what I just said. <laughs> Yeah, that is interesting. Well, hey, let's uh, move to the 80s um, and, and and 80s and 90s. Um, can you give us a little bit of a breakdown there? So I actually don't do a ton of study within the 80s. I know that there's um, more dialogue um, in the 80s and 90s for um, conservative um, firearms ownership. But I have to be honest, I don't really, mm-hmm. I've really never studied much more out of the 70s um, into the early 80s. So I feel like I would do a really bad job at <laughs> At telling you that. Uh, but I mean, if you want to talk more about, I mean, I'm familiar with, uh, you know, the changing of technology leading into marketing and advertising. So I could do that. Yeah. I mean, because that kind of brings us into the 21st century here, because we've seen quite a bit of different when it comes to uh, marketing and it's and, um, and, and how it's done, which is, uh, you know, brings us to the current time where we are. So let's talk about marketing. Yeah, uh, I'm glad. I'm like, I, it gave me a second to remember because I was like, I know that I haven't studied um, kind of the other side of the coin, you know, with uh, Ruby Ridge and all of that. Um, I need to learn more about some of the things that happened there. But um, so what's interesting is we have, uh, well, as I mentioned, you know, the technology is pretty old, right? It just looks mm-hmm. different. Um, obviously, that's an oversimplification. There's a lot of improvements in the technology. But uh, what is kind of fascinating is you get this shift away from um, marketing to people in more popular publications and going more into niche publications. And one good example is um, in the 1980s, you see kind of this um, movement, the late 1980s, you see um, kind of this conversation, which is again, very going to be very similar sounding about uh, increase in female firearms ownership. Um, and then, for example, I want to say it's 1989, the National Shooting Sports Foundation starts recording the number of women who are taking out hunting licenses that same year. Um, the, uh, Smith and Wesson re-releases their Lady Smith, which is, uh, they make a semi-automatic and a revolver version of what was a small revolver at the turn of the 20th century. 
Um, and they, it's so popular. They have to create a line called, um, the Smith and Wesson new line, uh, which, uh, <laughs> if you talk to, uh, Jim Sapika, who's a Smith and Wesson scholar, he will say that really just stood for not Lady Smith because men wanted those guns. Um, <laughs> you also get women in guns magazine comes out that same year. Um, and so you do have this kind of movement of trying to understand, you know, women in guns, this new phenomenon, right? Uh, it's not new, but it is something that gets picked up on a lot during this time frame. And so they, the Smith and Wesson was actually able to market, um, within ladies home journal, the red book, um, uh, that goes to my, my complete knowledge of women's magazines, mm-hmm. which <laughs> but, also uh, is kind of interesting because in today's world, you would never associate, um, those women, uh, targeted publications with having anything close to, you know, guns, uh, you know, in their pages. Well, and that's what's fascinating here is because they're running. So back in the 20th century, Smith and Wesson's ads were either, well, most firearms ads were either like, you know, to women were, you know, be the, you know, prettiest bell at the ball because you can shoot well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, all the boys want a good target shooter or they would be, you know, um, you know, how are you going to protect yourself when your husband's away at war kind of thing? It was very like, you know, <laughs> one or the other. And um, so that similar line of marketing kind of bled into the 1980s, 1990s. And I haven't seen the advertisement, but I've read about it. But I also have to take that with a grain of salt coming out of academia. But uh, that there were accusations of fear mongering um, from the way that the ads were being portrayed, um, that this was about scaring women, quote unquote, into wanting to own guns. Like I said, I haven't seen the ads, but I know that this conversation starts to happen, which is what pushes um, a lot of these companies out from being able to advertise in the women's journals. They don't want to have that, you know, in their culture. They don't want to have it advertised. They, you know, are thinking that you're just trying to scare women. And so I do know that there's kind of like this moment of like old marketing meets new marketing, um, you know, and then ultimately, you know, you come with, with women, you come all the way up to um, what my friends have always lovingly called shrink it and pink it mm-hmm. uh, in terms of advertising to women. Um but you do see that kind of movement where here's a bunch of, you know, stuff, gun companies are still able to advertise in mainstream, you know, kind of publications. And then that starts to kind of dissipate um, by the 1990s, obviously, um, as you come into, um, you know, the the assault weapons ban and larger conversations about firearms and, and regulation. Mm-hmm. Definitely, because I know in high school, I could walk into the gun store and buy whatever I wanted to. And by the time I was out of college, you were very limited on what you can do. And you know, the assault weapon ban was coming to effect, um, back universe or background checks, you know, from federal licensed dealers were coming, coming in, you know, there was uh, quite a bit of change. Um, so let's jump forward a little bit. Where does that bring us today in the 21st century? It's a mess. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, yes, I, I would agree because I mean, you know, the marketing, you know, we've got the same messages in a lot of cases, just recycled. Um, and then you go along and, you know, um, you know, we've, we've got a whole, whole different generation, uh, that, you know, has been at war for the last, you know, 15, uh, plus years for it. And there's, uh, you know, it's, it's quite a big, I know you probably don't have it completely analyzed yet because it's uh, ongoing for this century still, but it's also very interesting in the last uh, 20 years how we've, uh, the technology has uh, evolved. Um, you say pretty much the same technology. It's been out there for a long time, 
but now we've gone along and evolved it and involved the technology by going along marketing it to wider audiences or specific audiences. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's a great summary of it too. I mean, it's technology that's been around for a really long time, but then we've found ways to kind of develop and advance it. Um, but in terms of the, you know, kind of current, I mean, you, you're now pushing a historian, you pushed me into the eighties and I was like, oh, I can't. <laughs> but, the, but there is a relevant component to this history. And that brings it back to the first thing I talked about, which was the Bruin decision. Um, and the Bruin decision, you know, basically thrust history into the you know, the limelight um, in terms of determining constitutionality of firearms laws. Um, and so, you know, to give you kind of a perspective on that. So you know, I said it a little bit at the beginning, but this is where this is becoming very, very relevant um, on all of these Second Amendment cases now, especially since the decision. I mean, so many of the cases have now been bounced back to the lower courts and we're continuing to now we're, re you know, not we, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not retrying anything, but <laughs> we as a society, <laughs> mm -hmm. greater the, big, society. the bigger we. <laughs> yeah, the, the great, the grand we, the royal we. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, I guess not. No, we're not in England, but <laughs> but um, the conversation now, all of a sudden you're talking about modern, quote unquote, modern things uh, or modern, you know, terms that we're using. Um, and history has become the most one of the most important things to determine whether or not that we can even regulate these things. Um, so one of the, the biggest points in Bruin is so say if the founding era is the most relevant, which it is. Um, so I can use an example of, you know, magazine capacity. Um, so if you have right now, everyone's talking about, you know, having capacities over 10 rounds versus under 10 rounds in terms of regulation. And so when looking at kind of the validity within the Bruin decision, you first look at the founding era, um, you know, did this technology exist? Yes, it did exist. Um, would it have been something that would have been on, you know, the radar? Um, but then also are there laws that regulate this similar technology. Um, and if not, you know, then is it something that we can or cannot regulate? So, for example, you can say like, okay, well, there wasn't a magazine regulation but back then, but was there a regulation, you know, on repeaters? You know, something, so it doesn't have to be exactly the same, but, you know, is there something similar? And if there's not, then there isn't historical precedent. Um, and that kind of goes beyond my level of understanding it in terms of the legal, you know, they, I throw out the history and then everybody else gets to decide whether or not that law is what they call analogous, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the historic law, if it's in analogous or not to to modern law but that's kind of why the the history has become so important because you know it's the founding era it's the second founding era maybe um you know the bruin decision didn't need the second founding era um but a lot of these cases are bringing in the 14th amendment because of you know mass manufacture um shifting culture with firearms and that kind of thing and so it is so important to knowing kind of where we've come from uh, technology wise, how the culture has shifted, how regulations have shifted and how they haven't shifted, um, because that is all going to inform decisions moving forward. Mm -hmm. I never thought history would be so relevant. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's one of those things to where you, you, bring, you make some good points about how, you know, the hot topic of today magazine capacities rifles um you know all those types of things but when you go along and look back over the decades and the centuries you realize that you know wait a minute this has been around for a long time it just 
somebody's decided to make it the re- most relevant issue of, of the time and that's where you go along and you know go back and say okay you know what's what's behind it and what's relevant and that's where uh, i think berlin is going to have a um impact for a long long time uh probably the rest of my life and yeah. it's uh you know very important um because at the same time you know all the amendments um you know the first amendment second amendment you know to, to, for as important are kind of bedrocks of what we base america on and that's where very you know it, it's I think it's important to go along and put things into context to what the uh, colonies were facing and why they had certain rules at certain times because, hey, it was against the law to go along and speak against the King of England, you know, b- before we, you know, had the revolution. You know, it was, yeah. you know, the King of England could go along and, uh, you know, just take your firearms away to protect yourself or to go and, um, you know, harvest your, um, your, a meal for your family, you know, those types of things. And that's, you know, a lot of what drove those amendments to our, to our constitution and why so many people hold them so dear because, you know, when we were under another country's rule, those weren't guaranteed to any extent at all. It's really, I don't know. It's been really kind of interesting. You know, I've been now in the field for, I can't do math, 15 years. Well, that's frightening. Um, <laughs> I'm only 22. No, um, you know, I've been, I've been around now, um, you know, for all of my adult life and I'm not someone that grew up around guns. Um, so I kind of come from this perspective, you know, in kind of a unique way, but, um, it is really fascinating to me and I hope productive to the dialogue that now history can play such a role in understanding how we got to where we are. I mean, it seems like a no brainer, right. But it feels like a lot of times, it's not a topic that, you know, is discussed. And I mean, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, I just founded a research center at the University of Wyoming. Part of the biggest issues that we're having in terms of just comprehension is that there aren't programs where you can go and study the subject matter. I mean, you can study arms and armor in Europe a lot more readily than you can study it here. Um, you know, if it's arms and armor, you just go to an art history department, but that's different, right? That's a different way to look at that object. Um So you've got to kind of get creative if you want to study firearms specifically. And so one thing that I've noticed, because I work with, you know, people across the spectrum and, um, you know, when I was down, I was actually with the D.C. project meeting with Republican and Democrat politicians. And I, you know, learned about, you know, who's doing the research on a lot of the, the stuff that they're, you know, you know, voting on. And it's, you know, the people within their department. Well, the people within their department, you know, aren't going to be firearms experts. They're going to be really good at what they do. And that's pulling research. Well, what happens when you don't have solid research to pull from? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you get this really interesting kind of you get this difficulty where gun research has so often been done by non-traditional scholars. So gun collectors, um, gun researchers, uh, which, you know, they, they sometimes put out really good information. A lot of times they put out really good information, but there's no peer vetting system to know what's good and what's not, unless you've just kind of been around like, like me. Um, so you've got non-traditional scholars producing information without a peer vetting system, but then you've got traditional scholars who don't have peers, right? So how can you have peer review if you don't have peers that know the material? Um, And the best example of that is Arming America, which is this book that came out a while ago. Um, I'm not going to, I don't want to butcher the guy's name, but um, 
he won the Bancroft, which is like the number one award you can get in the history field um, for his book. And book basically said that, you know, there wasn't a lot of gun ownership during the founding era. And when pushed to produce his his citations, he didn't have them anymore. I can't remember if it was a flood or a fire or something. And so for the first time in the history of the Bancroft, that was rescinded um, because he, you know, and, and if I remember correctly, one of the professors at Delaware, who's brilliant, she sat on his dissertation committee, you know, but she doesn't know guns. And so you've got you've got one group producing most of the scholarship without a vetting system. And then you've got another group without peers. But mm-hmm. when you look at when a researcher has to pull information, they have to pull information from what is considered acceptable uh, information. And usually that comes from peer review. Um, but we're in this unique situation where we don't really have on, you know, a great peer review system. So they're going to pull from the, the, the side that they perceive as the most appropriate, which is the academic community. And certainly there is good scholarship out there, but it's hit or miss. And so if you're somebody making those decisions and you're somebody having to pull the research for somebody, I mean, if it, if the research isn't there or isn't easy to understand what research is good, I don't blame people for being confused. I'm confused half the time. Well, I can say just uh, one of the things I spend well, not a lot of time, but I get a lot of questions on it is, you know, how, how are things viewed? Because I'll just say it from a legal standpoint, I'm no legal scholar also, but it's confusing as all heck. Uh, some of the laws that we have as far as, you know, what, what's considered, you know, a short barrel rifle versus a pistol versus, um, you know, shotguns, all those types of things. There's plenty of examples where the normal normal person looking at it says it doesn't make sense and it's like well it's, until you go along and understand how the how the laws were written or interpreted and that's where um yeah there's there's a lot of room for improvement so i'm glad to hear that you are you've found it the uh university of wyoming center for fire uh, firearms uh, research center firearm FRC. Research center. we can make it easy <laughs> Farm Research Center, FRC. Okay, I can remember that now. So that's that's good good to hear because uh, I I would definitely say that probably over the next uh, ten years, your research and who who goes through the programs will definitely be very uh, pivotal in gun culture in the twenty first century, without a doubt. We really hope so. Um, you know, it it's got to start small, but we hope it'll help encourage people to want to study firearms. And, you know, the one thing with the academic community is we don't have to all agree, but we want good scholarship out there. We want accurate scholarship out there. Um, and so we're, we're hopeful, but we're right in the, in the early stages. So we'll see yeah, exactly. how it all plays out. Well, yeah, so this is uh, episode one for season five, and we got a new question for all our guests. Can you name an event class or place that you feel that someone in the 2A community should Go and do um, or see, uh, you know, that you've experienced previously. Oh, and I I was warned about this and I still don't have a, I mean, Cody Firearms Museum for sure. Uh, But, you know, I think a place that I would tell people to go to, um, and it's going to be completely off the wall. So I... apologize. I would go visit the Winchester Mystery House in San Jose, California. Um, I didn't talk about her today, but I could have. Um, You know, the Winchester Mystery House is a house um, that was designed and quote unquote built like she didn't do the building, but by Sarah Winchester, who was the heir to the Winchester fortune. She was married to Oliver Winchester's son, William Wirt. Um, Her child and, and her husband died. She moved out to California and um, she built this house that is eccentric. 
Um, and it's a fascinating house to go see, but I think it's really important for people to go out there because, um, the house is not a museum, it's an attraction. Um, and they're, and they're great. Like they really do a great job, but there's a fascinating thing that comes into play in the 20th century in terms of gun culture that we've been talking about. And then the story is that Sarah was haunted, felt that she was haunted by the people killed by the, you know, Winchester rifles and that she built this crazy house because the ghost told her to do it. And she held seances. And, you know, the reason that there's all kinds of kooky stuff in the house, like the stairwell to nowhere is because it's the, what the ghost told her and that, that she was this woman riddled with guilt um, for the fact that she was one of the richest people in America because of firearms and that's not true at all um you know she was a brilliant woman um she was actually a savant she was an architect she was um fluent and i can't even remember how many languages she super charitable she barely lived in the house she spent more time out of the house than she did inside the house um and she's just this amazing woman and i will say that the 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 people at the winchester mystery house will show you are proud to show you all of her inventions like some of the things in that house are just brilliant ahead of their time inventions. Um, so I think that a lot of times in the gun community, there's a, almost this like, we should be backing our own, right? Uh, mentality. Um, and, and we didn't talk about this, but like with mental illness and everyone talks about Sarah Winchester um, as being crazy and she wasn't. And um, I think that it would be great for more people to go to that house to not keep spreading that ghost story and actually learn about someone who was a brilliant, very wealthy person tied to a major manufacturer at the turn of the 20th century. That's a very good suggestion. And as we try to do every season, try to come up with a, different question a question to ask our guest and every time somebody's come up with a really good suggestion so the winchester mystery house uh, would be a really neat one i haven't been there but it is on just my don't list. heckle the staff too bad <laughs> <laughs> i'm just not in california that much that's that's my excuse if i was out yeah. there i would definitely go and uh, see the house that's for sure well ashley we appreciate your time uh to on this episode and such, but if people want to reach out to you to uh, ask you questions or anything else like that, um, where can they reach you at? So um, my social media is at history and heels on Instagram and then at official Ashley Lubinsky. Have fun spelling that on Facebook. Um, you can go to my website, theguncode.com. Um, you can contact me on either of those. And then also, if you want to know more about the research center, um, it is uh, at firearms research on Instagram and Facebook and firearmsresearchcenter.org. Got it. Perfect. Okay. Ashley, thanks again for your time. And, uh, We'll be seeing you at one of the upcoming uh, industry shows, I'm sure, uh, if if I make it to one yeah. this year, that is. <laughs> okay, thank you. That's a wrap for our first episode of Season 5, and I hope you enjoyed it and can share it with your friends. you have a topic or person you'd like me to talk about or have suggestions on our format, feedback, feel free to email me at ftp at concealedcarry.com. You can also leave us comments on our website firearmtrainerpodcast.com remember on our website you can go back and search previous episodes listen to previous episodes download episodes all our information is there for you to browse and uh, take advantage of i also want you to think about going to google play or itunes and leaving us a review there give us a five-star rating hopefully and let other people know that you find us interesting and useful also want to ask you to visit our sponsors, especially the Firearm Trainers Association at ftaprotect.com and check out their instructor insurance. Establishing your business was your big step. 
Getting certified was the next step. Now go along and get FTA coverage to cover you for the rest of it. And remember to use promo code FTP10 for 10% off at checkout. We bring this podcast support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Stay safe, everyone. Concealed Carry Inc. and ConcealedCarry.com strives to share helpful information and education about gun-related topics, training tips, and other things that may potentially have legal implications for its listeners. The information contained in this podcast is intended in good faith, but it is important to understand that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand laws that apply to them. Nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued as legal advice or counsel.